This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. You're listening to episode 28, and our co host, Emily Reddington, is talking with Ashley Mitchell. This is Lindsay Hine, one of the other co hosts, and I'm doing the intro today because Emily has lost her voice. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Ashley now. Ashley is the owner of Big Tough Girl and founder and executive director of Lifetime Healing Foundation. She has set out to seek increased care, understanding, and resources for birth mothers. Ashley is a birth mother herself. She placed her now 13-year-old son at birth up for adoption, proceeding with an open adoption. Her journey started long before her adoption story and now has continued long after. She shares so much about her life and the path that has led her to where she is today. Ashley and Emily talk about her story, supporting birth mothers after adoption, and the current state of some adoption programs, and what she hopes for in the adoption community. Ashley is brave and vulnerable when talking about her journey, touching on pain points and healing points with so much transparency. Listen this week to hear a voice from a population that has been historically silenced. I promise you will learn and you will be changed. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. We have Ashley Mitchell on today. Hey, Ashley, thanks so much for chatting with me. Yes, thank you for having me. This is so fun. I'm so looking forward to hearing more about your story and like everything that you've made it into. It's pretty amazing. Um, you've, (laughs) You've walked through some really lonely and dark times after making a brave and loving decision of putting your son up for adoption. And now you've come back around to create space and support those uh, who are where you once were. Uh, And I'm just really encouraged by your story. I'm thankful you are sharing in hopes that other birth moms can find support and healing. Uh, I'd love to learn more about you and your family and the work you do. Could you introduce yourself? Yes, of course. So thank you once again for having me. Um, I love to share my story that for anyone that will listen to me talk. Um, I am, oh, I just turned 40. Wow. That's good. I just told my husband last night, my 40s are going to be amazing. Everyone keeps telling me that 40 is amazing. And I'm like, whatever magic pill you're taking, let me know, girl, because I am not feeling it. Um, But I live in Utah and my husband and I have two children. Um, We've been married. It'll be 11 years in 2020, which is pretty awesome. Um, But motherhood found me differently um, than a lot of women actually, um, because my children that I had with my husband were, was not my first. Um, My first pregnancy actually came to me in a very unplanned and very, um, shameful and scary time. Um, when I found myself pregnant at the age of 25, um, trying to make a decision of what I was going to do, I was, um, kind of 
on again, off again with my, uh, with my boyfriend at the time. And, uh, we found ourselves pregnant and trying to make, you know, a decision that, um, that a lot of women face about what to do. And it was, um, a terrifying life. You know, it was not a season of celebration and baby showers and, you know, people rallying around you and shopping for baby things. It was, secrecy and shame and hiding and embarrassment and just so much fear. Um, and so at 25, I find myself pregnant, um, getting ready to become a mother for the first time and having no clue about what that looked like moving forward. Mm-hmm. And so we, we had some big decisions to make. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. what kind of work are you in now that had to tie into that? So <laughs> that's a loaded question. Okay. So the kind of work that I'm in now, um, we have spent years through grief and trauma, um, for myself as a woman who, um, carried my baby to term and decided to place my child for adoption, um, through my own grief and trauma through those years after, being separated from my son, trying to really understand that grief and trauma and what that looked like and trying to put a name to it and really diving into understanding what that actually meant. Um, We wrote the nation's first curriculum on post-placement care. And what that means and what we were seeing is that women that were making a decision to place their children for adoption were needing lifetime support that when we make this decision, it is for life. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear these these stories of these mothers who lose their babies to death and there's this separation and this grief. And I was separated from my son, but he's alive and well. And mm-hmm. grieving someone that's still alive is confusing and painful and traumatic. And so we were in this season of saying, adoption doesn't actually end at the hospital. That's kind of actually where it starts. And so when we leave the hospitals without our babies, that's where the journey really begins for us, the biological parents on our, our side of this, this adoption triad story. And so um, just really standing with professionals to say, if you're going to stand with us in this, in this destruction, you have to be with us in the rebuilds and, and we need you to stand with us and support us. And so we're training all over the country and encouraging professionals to um, raise the standard in um, post-placement care and serve the mothers and not just see them as the vessel to get the baby here to serve the adoptive families. That's so wonderful. And really learning <laughs> about lot. your, it's a lot. Um, and learning about your work was just really eye-opening for me. I, I think that growing up, I, I didn't really have a ton of connection to adoption in my family. And so I was just naively seeing like rainbows and butterflies and thinking this adoption was a baby and a family to love them. And the birth mom, honestly, in my head was completely left out of the triad. And so I feel like this narrative probably is pretty pervasive in general um, with adoption. And so the work you're doing is so incredibly important because that, like you talked about, the birth mom is left completely unsupported after being separated from her child, an incredibly large trauma. Um, So I do want to jump back to where you were 14 years ago. What were you like? 
what, why, why at 25 and in your circumstance, did you choose um, adoption? And where I just want to see a picture of that. I just want to create for our <laughs> listeners, like, just, um, yeah, like, just share more about who you were and where, what led you to that choice. So I grew up here in Utah um, that has a very strong religious culture Mm -hmm. and I'm a believer. So, you know, I believe in Jesus and have a very strong, you know, moral, moral code as far as that goes. But it's so interesting. Um, You find yourself in these kinds of situations and it's amazing what you would compromise out of complete fear, Mm. Um, fear of what that means for yourself and owning (laughs) the reality of what's happening. Um, Stepping into the fear of what it means to tell everybody else to, you know, completely wreck my family. You know, I'm, I'm here and I'm pregnant and I'm trying to make these decisions. Um, I'm an adult, (laughs) but at the same time, I'm still just this child, like, Oh my gosh, everyone's going to find out. Mm -hmm. And that fear is crippling. And so actually for me, my, my instinct was uh, the only reality I could really wrap my head around was that I'm pregnant and I need not to be. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how could this be happening? I mean, we know how it happened. I mean, we right. know how I got pregnant, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I was facing this reality of I'm pregnant and I need not to be, this uh-huh. cannot be happening. Uh-huh. And in that headspace, the only way that I knew to eliminate that problem was abortion. Mm-hmm. And even though it went against everything that I believed in, it still was the only thing that would eliminate. And, and I say that and I, I want, I want, and I want people to know that are listening that I know that when I say I need to eliminate this problem, they're like, how can you say that about your son? You know, and you'll, there's so much redemption in this. So you'll see that later. But at the time, I wasn't even thinking about my son. I wasn't even thinking about this life inside me. I was thinking about the search, the situation and mm-hmm. the circumstance that said, you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. The fact that there was a child grow, didn't even register with me. And so that was the only way I knew to eliminate that. And I went through that process and went to the abortion clinic in Salt Lake City and um, a nurse came in and she said four words that changed my life forever. And she said, we can't help you. She said, you're too far along. And in, uh, I mean, just seconds, four words completely changed the course of my life forever, changed generations, changed so much more than I even knew at the time that didn't even exist at the time. Mm -hmm. And I walked out of that abortion clinic and I was faced with the option of whether I parent or whether I choose adoption. And for me at that time, adoption just became my option. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, people tell me, Oh my gosh, thank you for choosing life. And I was like, you know, life kind of chose him because that's headspace that I was in. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that moment. Um, I didn't know how much I needed him now and how, how amazing he is. He's such an amazing kid now, but I look at him now and I'm like, I can't believe, you know, that I ever considered that. But I think, I think we forget that that's a very 
real reality that a lot of women face in this very scary time of unplanned pregnancy that we have to acknowledge and show grace for because mm-hmm. it because it exists. Mm-hmm. For sure. Can you walk me through a little bit of what happened after that? Like just um, especially for people that aren't like I said, I wasn't super familiar with adoption and like all the details that go along with it. Um, how that progressed with you and, you know, just what that looked like. So when I walked out of that abortion clinic, uh, walls, you know, bars on the windows, bars on the doors, you know, I walked out of that clinic facing now a whole new reality than I was before yeah. because now it's like, Oh crap. Now I'm actually pregnant. Yeah. Like, now I have this is happening. Carry this. Yeah. This is happening. I have to give birth. I've never given birth before. Yeah. Like, I had no idea what it looked like. I, I'd never been pregnant before. And so this whole new reality was terrifying because um, I can't hide it as well. Mm-hmm. It's very public. My belly was going to grow and all of these things. And so now I'm faced with this whole new reality. And so I actually kept that a secret still for a very long time um, because I was so scared and so ashamed and didn't want to hurt people. I didn't want to hurt the people around me. Uh, which is so silly, you know, I, I, we see that a lot, women that are going through, you know, horrific trauma, whether it's child loss, or even in divorce, or cancer, or anything, we see the women that are going through it, catering to other people, I want to make sure that you're okay with what I'm going through, which is ridiculous, it should be the other way around, but I think as women are just, our instinct is to care for others, and so even when we're going through the trauma, we want to make sure that everyone else is okay, Mm -hmm. And so my mindset for me was really to as much burden that I could keep off of others than I would. And so I kept that a secret for um, the the rest of my pregnancy until I was about seven months. And um, that burden, that secret was, um, man, it was a lot. It was very lonely. Wow. Wow. Um, you know, I live in Utah, so we get a lot of snow and it was in the winter time. And so I could wear the big sweatshirts and, mm-hmm. you know, hide um, my belly really well. But, you know, at the end of the day at night, I would come home and like unwrap my belly and take all my layers off and just breathe and just be able to just sit in the reality of my growing belly and him starting to kick and all these things. And it was um, it was such a lonely time and such a burden Um, But I really thought, you know, in the big picture, I was saving everybody else from having Mm. to deal with pain and suffering. And so I just kept it a secret until I couldn't anymore because this baby was coming whether I was ready or not. (laughs) And when my parents finally found out, I was about seven and a half months pregnant and they were like, what the hell? (laughs) Why did we know? You know? You know, and they were like, what are you like five months, you know, or whatever. And I was like, well, actually, I'm like seven and a half. And they were like, what? Like, you know, I'd only gained like 20 pounds. People just thought I was fat that winter. Like, really, like people didn't really know. They just kind of turned a blind eye. You know, I was still trying to go to the gym and just everything that I did to try and cover up that pregnancy. And so they were in shock. Then it was like, well, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And I think I had already really in my mind decided that I wanted to place the child for adoption over parenting. Um, I hadn't really expressed that out loud because no one knew, mm-hmm. You didn't have <laughs> but to. I kind yeah. of, yeah, but I kind of felt like 
You know, and that's tough because at this time I would have been 26 and on paper, like, why wouldn't I parent? You know what I mean? I had a job, I had health insurance, I had, you know, all of these things. I had a positive family support system. Um, you know, it's easier for society as a whole to understand why a 15 year old would make a decision to place their child for adoption. Right. Uh But when they're looking at this 26, you know, adult, 26 year old adult that has all of these benefits, you know, why wouldn't you parent? And it was was so much bigger than that for me. Um, I, I, if I'm being really, really honest, there was definitely some selfish pieces in that decision. Um, I, I didn't want to be a mom in that kind of position in that situation. I just, I didn't. And I know how horrible that sounds, but I just, if I'm being really honest and being really honest in that space is um, really benefited me. Um, but I just, I wasn't ready. And that wasn't something I wanted to take on. There were definitely things that I wanted for my son that I didn't feel like I could provide. So there was definitely decisions that I made that were in the best interest of my son um, but if I'm being really honest, there were definitely decisions that were in the best interest for me too. <laughs> right. Well, so. I mean, honestly, it is a, it's not, you could say like, I think it's, uh, naive to say that a human could make a decision a hundred percent for the child in their belly. I mean, that's just, that that's yeah. not possible at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it's easier for people to like wrap their head around like, you know, because I have people all the time. Oh, I could never do that. I could never give my baby away. So I think it's easier for people to create this message that's beautiful and brave and selfless and amazing. And for me, it was like, yeah, there was some selfish reasons behind that. Right. Right. I mean, my husband and I had two kids and I wasn't prepared for either of them either in the best case scenario, like let alone in in this position. Right. I mean, Um, like ideally you would love it if you could just take that whole self out of the picture. There's so many times as a parent that I'm like, God, I just got in the way of myself, like of like, (laughs) it was me being selfish and I just got in the way, but it's reality, right? You know, it's just, there's, it just happens. You had talked to your, finally told your parents then came to the realization kind of after that of, okay, okay, I, I do think I want a place. Like, I think I want to proceed with adoption. So then like what happened after that? How did you find your way with that? So (laughs) it's funny. I think, you know, this was on a Sunday night that I sat down and told my parents and I really felt like I was like a 15 year old kid sitting down and talking to my parents. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a woman thing that we're, uh, it's, more ingrained in us to want to please our parents. Yeah. And so when I was sitting down in front of my parents, I was like, felt like I was like a 15 year old kid, like getting in trouble. It was the worst. It was the worst. But when they knew, when they finally knew it was like so much relief because I'd been carrying this burden for so long by myself that I think I almost like inappropriately had like a little bit of a grin on my face because I was just like, Oh my gosh, finally. Yeah. Finally, someone knows, like, I'm terrified, but at least it's out there. So you and the father were not, like, supporting each other through this time. So, bless him. (laughs) Um, He, so he was the only one that knew when I was pregnant and we had mutually made the decision, you know, to have that abortion. And so, you know, I don't want to throw him under the bus. Mm -hmm. I wasn't pressured. It was a mutual decision. 
Um, but when that became not an option, it definitely fell on me more to kind of make that decision. Um, and I definitely used that and manipulated him and was just kind of a jerk about it, Mm -hmm. um, through that pregnancy because Mm -hmm. I was so angry, um, which was completely unfair. Um, it's easy to be in that space of victimhood when you're going through something so hard and he was an easy scapegoat to me just beat up Yeah, and I'm kind of a jerk. Yeah. Um, and you know, I had to work really hard to let some of that go, but it was, I was really kind of in this adoption process by myself, um, with my, with my family, with my uh, immediate family. Yeah. Um, so this was a Sunday night and by Monday morning, my mom had an appointment with a caseworker at the agency and it was like, (laughs) we are moving this forward. I think, I think they were relieved when I, because I brought up the topic of adoption. And so I think because I brought it up, my mom was like, yeah, we're moving with that. Yeah. I think if there would have been a little more conversation around, you know, like, you know, I don't know, you know, this was 14 years ago. My parents had never been through this. They've never had a child in this situation. Um, None of us knew what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And we look back now and we, you know, could say that there's a million things that we could have done better. Um, But we just didn't know. Yeah. And we were all scared and we were all sad and frustrated and angry and we just were trying to handle it and control it the best that we knew how um and so we had an appointment you know by the next within 24 hours wow and i went to an agency and the next step in that process was picking a family Mm -hmm. to be the parents of my of my son Hmm. and that process is the stupidest thing on the planet. You know, we have to pick a stranger off of, off of a, you know, a little profile book. Yeah. She, you know, 14 years ago, it was scrapbook pages and sheet protectors, you know, little eight by eight and a half by 11 um, scrapbook pages with tacky stickers and, you know, photo covers on everything. (laughs) You know, they weren't the really nice professional books and things like that that and online profiles Videos that people have now, and, but yeah, yeah. But I looked through fifty families, um, all strangers, and my caseworker handed me the stack, and she said, "Pick one." Wow. And I was like, "Are you wow. kidding me?" <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Wow. So. I mean, it's kind of just what I thought of in that moment was, um, you're at this one agency. With one stack of 50 papers. Mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, that's kind of mind blowing to me that. Um, and you're expected to choose just. I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, as a fearful, like in a fearful position that you were in, you know, um, you're you're not like advocating like, well, I'm going to go to this agency and this other agency and, you know, look at 200 different families or, you know, 500 different families. You're like okay. All right. Here's my choices. I'm going to go from here. Um, yeah. That's just interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, when people hear that, I say, you know, that I looked at 50 families and now people are only looking at like five to 10 and people are like, wow. Oh my gosh. 50. And I'm like, gosh, Oh my gosh. I wish. Yeah. Um, huh. you know, I don't know why that's just so interesting to me for some reason that yeah. I, I, I personally believe that the women should be able to look at 
as many as they want. Yeah. But I think there's this mindset that it's so overwhelming that we don't want to overwhelm her with all these families. And I'm like, you don't think we're o- already yeah. overwhelmed? I mean, come on. Right. Right. We are already out of our head. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, interesting. But there's this weird, there's this very interesting process. Um, there's two very real things that go through your head in this process. One, how in the hell do I pick a stranger to be the parents of my child? Mm-hmm. And this is, this is all I've got. What if I make the wrong choice? Right. What if they suck? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I'm putting the life of my child literally in the hands of strangers. Like that crossing alone your makes fingers. me feel, yeah. yeah, that makes me feel like a crappy parent because I don't let my kids get babysat by people that I don't know. I mean, you know, we do our research, we do yeah. our due diligence. And in this space, I'm just trusting that what these people put in their profile is who they really are. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this other side of that when you read these profiles, and you hear these devastating stories of loss and infertility and miscarriage and their desire, you know, to be parents. There's also this pressure and overwhelming feeling of how do I deem one family worthy of a child and another not? Mm-hmm. Cause they're all in that pile for the same reasons. And it's a lot, it's a lot to put on somebody. Yeah. Um, and just how do you, how do you pick? How do you pick? Yeah. How long did that process take or how long did they want it to take or, you know, what did it look like? <laughs> so, you know, they say take your time, but yeah. I was also, you know, eight, you know, eight months pregnant. So right. they say take your time, but I really am like looking at a clock cause this baby's coming in a month and I, you know, I needed to pick somebody. And so <laughs> gonna sound so bad because it's really not this casual but the process of elimination is ridiculous so this first process of elimination is looking at the pictures visually you know back then it was like oh her perm is so bad or like his jeans <laughs> are so weird yeah <laughs> you know it was like how do you eliminate the nose to even like consider the maybes you know and so I remember it was my parents and I and my oldest brother and we had all these profiles spread out on this kitchen table you know and they were weighing in and they were like oh absolutely not with this family and absolutely not they're not going to be a part of this you know and it was it was just you know there there is something to be said for the really this true connection when you know you know, you hear all the time that these, that these expectant mothers really connect with this family and they just know, like they look at their profile and they just know. Um, but for me, I connected with two families, Hmm. which is a nightmare because it's like, how do I, how do I pick? And so for me, that process was, you know, we spent an entire day and night. So this is 24 hours of going through these families. And then I had narrowed it down to the two and I, I went to bed. I was staying at my parents during this time and I put them on the nightstand and I said, this is as far as I can go. Mm-hmm. Like I just, I, I cannot pick. And I just prayed and I just said, please give me clarity when I roll over in the mm-hmm. morning and look at their faces because I cannot pick. This is too much. And I'm already so emotional yeah. and my hormones are going crazy and I was like, please, this is, please give me clarity in the morning. And I woke up and I knew as soon as I looked at him who it was going to be. Wow. And 
you know, I, I think, I think about the woman that I didn't pick all the time. Um, her face is like burned into my brain. And I wonder all the time, did she get picked? Because I really believe that she could have been an amazing mom to my son. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's just not the clarity I received in the morning. But I think about her all the time. This isn't something that we do casually. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I always wonder, you know, what happened with them, but I have to hope that she found yeah. a baby. Yeah. I really hope so. Yeah. So now I, I picked this amazing family and they had other kids and I sent her a letter on March 6th of 2006 and said, you guys are having a boy. Wow. And he was born April 4th. Oh, wow. So less than a month. Okay. Less than a month. Um, and in that month, I met them and invited them to the hospital, and we, we were rolling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that day comes, and you're in labor, and, um, you know, you have your son. Uh, it's all surreal, right? Um, having a baby, no matter what, is very intense and surreal. But you add in that um, there's this whole, like, journey that you're about to embark on that you have no idea what to expect um how did that next step feel in terms of um two things one you know what kind of support were you given while you're at the hospital and while you're um like in communication with the family at the hospital um and then also um just how did it feel to you when you had your baby? Um, yeah, when you had your baby. Um, can you still hear me okay? Yep. Okay. Um, so we scheduled me to be induced um, because I wanted their family to be at the hospital and be a part okay. of that experience. Um. You know, there's not a book on the planet that you can read that can prepare you for a childbirth. Um, because once you're in it, it's just such a crazy, amazing thing. I have been incredibly blessed to be able to give birth three times. Um, but this was so, such a different energy around it. Um, because I knew I was going to become a mother for the very first time. But I also knew that within 72 hours, I was going to relinquish my rights to my son and become a birth mother. And it just had such a different heavy yeah. <laughs> thing. Um, and so I invited them to be in the hospital. So they were out in the waiting room with my parents and the social worker. And I didn't want anyone in the delivery room with me. And I had kind of made the decision before I um, went to the hospital that I didn't want to hold him. And so that was kind of the birth plan that was like, I, I feel like it's going to be too hard. Um, so as soon as he's born, please take him. And <laughs> um, then I gave birth and the second he was born, I like leaned up and reached for him yeah. and, and, and went for him. And I was like, Oh crap, I wasn't going to do that. And I just, I, I, couldn't stop myself it was just yeah. such a natural instinct yeah. to reach for my son and as much as I had tried to emotionally disconnect and 
you know, this baby is theirs. And, you know, the second he was born, I reached for my son and I held him and I was like, I know you, you know, yeah, of course. We, had spent, yeah. we had spent so much time. There were so many sacred nights when I was pregnant because of the secrecy where it really was just him and I, and mm-hmm. just these, these intimate sacred conversations and to finally meet him and talk mm-hmm. to him. It was just, I couldn't help myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, when he cried for the first time and it just, uh, it was the most amazing sound I'd ever experienced in my life. You know, and it was so crazy. And I knew, I knew on the other side of that cracked door of that delivery room was this woman that was hoping to be his mom and take him home from the hospital. And we shared that first cry together in such an intimate and different way that it was, um, really cool, but it was a lot. It mm-hmm. was a lot. Um, so the next couple of days at the hospital were, whoo, <laughs> they were, they were tough. I look back now and I'm like, what was I thinking? Like it was way too much, but I yeah. had all of his family there, extended family, cousins, aunts, uncles, oh, my goodness. Oh. in my room all day, every day. And they were hugging me and I was healing and you're so amazing. And it was awesome yeah. to see how many people were going to be loving, loving my son, Derek, and, and how much they were already connecting with him and yeah. bonding with him. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted them there. Yeah. I wanted to see that that connection was going to feel natural for them and easy for them because I didn't know. Yeah. Um, but I look back now and I was like, whoo, <laughs> that was a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, and you know, but at night when, when everyone got to leave, um, and it was just him and I, and the nurse was like, you know, can I take him to the nursery? And I was like, I will cut you if you yeah. take him. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> this is my time. Yeah. This is the only time that I have when I am his mother, yes. 100%. And yes. those nights, those, those few nights in the hospital, um, were some of the most sacred conversations. Again, just praying over him and crying over him and memorizing him and begging forgiveness. And, um, just knowing that when the morning came, everyone else was going to be back and we were going to do it all over again. And, um, he was my son in those, those, those quiet evenings in the hospital. And it was, it was pretty amazing to spend that time with him. Yeah. It seems like it was probably pretty simple in those moments, right? Like you were his mom, he was your son. That's yeah. it. Yeah. It was just, just like any other yeah. mom holding a newborn. Yeah. And, and it, it was brief. Yeah. It was just for those few hours, but you know, people talk all the time, you know, I have visits with him now and I see him now he's almost 14, you know, and I look at him and, but still, when I think about him, I think about him in the times when I was his only mother and yeah. he was a newborn and that's how I remember him. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so the pain that was associated with like losing a child, like you were talking about, but he's not dead. He's alive and well with another family. Um, that's heavy and has to bring you to places where you never could have expected to go. Um, where did that pain bring you? Like, what was the next part of your journey and where did, yeah, where did that pain bring you? So 
when I relinquished the rights to my son, I was in, still in the hospital and it was at the same time as discharge. So when, when I was clear to leave the hospital, they had me um, terminate my parental rights to my son and it's irrevocable in the state of Utah. So the second okay. that I put in the paper, I was no longer his wow. mother and there was no changing my mind. There was no going back. Wow. And You know, you, they tell you that it's for life, but you don't really understand what that means until you've experienced life after that. And so, mm -hmm. um, so this is the best, this is adoption for those of you that don't really understand, or maybe are coming from a space of just really only being educated on one side or another. This is the best analogy. Um, I, I relinquished the rights to my son in my hospital room with witnesses and my caseworker and my son was in his crib and I had to say goodbye to him. And I looked at his face and I was like, I really don't know if I'll ever see you again. Hmm. I left my, I left my room. I was with my father and down at the end of the hallway, I looked down and there was his family. <laughs> these, the, these people that I had chosen were there with balloons and laughter and love and smiling and celebration. And I was in so much grief and pain and it just had said goodbye to my son and that's adoption. It's the two at opposite ends of the hallway. There is grief and loss in adoption that starts with this biological mother. And there's hope and love and celebration in this adoptive family. And we have to meet in the middle somewhere. And I walked down that hallway and his mom and I locked eyes, you know, and in that moment, I, I hated her. I did. Mm. Um, you know, and mm -hmm. we've talked about this. She knows this. And she's like, oh, I know you hated me. Mm -hmm. Your eyes were like, burning into my soul when you <laughs> yeah. at me. but it was just like she represented everything that I felt like I was not mm -hmm. in that moment and that was a tough space to sit in and knowing that I was going to leave and they were going to carry my son out was was too much um and my dad was standing with me and he's like I feel like I'm leaving my grandson's funeral mm. And right then I collapsed. He carried his 26-year-old adult daughter out of the hospital. Um, and now it's, again, this whole new reality of now what? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I'm a mother, but I'm childless. Mm -hmm. Everything about my body was preparing for motherhood. My milk was coming in and my hormones were crazy. And I was, you know, still bleeding and healing and tux pads and mesh underwear and all of these things. Yeah. And no, no baby. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was um, maybe the loneliest, you know, I was empty bellied and empty arms and completely changed to the core of who I was as a woman um, and a mother. And um, now I had to coexist with this completely new identity. And that was, um, that was crushing. Mm -hmm. It was crushing. I didn't know how to handle that. So no one was talking to me that I was going to like be sad or feel grief. And I know that sounds so wow. like, obvious. like, of course you're going to be, but the, the propaganda around this is, and what people know is that we did this amazing thing. We created this family, right? We gave this amazing gift. Why would we be sad about that? Uh, but you're not receiving any <laughs> part of that gift. <laughs> um, no. 
or feeling it. You're only feel. I mean, you are only losing, really. I mean, in your everyday life, in the normal everyday reality, is yeah, loss. Well, and and like you said, you didn't even think about the biological mother. Yeah, about there being somebody before this family was built through adoption. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that it's there's a real woman on the other side of that child before those worlds even collide. There's this whole life, this whole woman, this whole pregnancy, all of these things. And now all of a sudden there's this amazing adoptive family and they have brought this baby home finally. And, you know, we've been supporting them and helping them fundraise and all of these things. And then as soon as that baby's born, what about me? What about, what about the mother that gave birth to this child? And so there was no conversation around grief and trauma. Um, It was just, you did this amazing thing and you helped create this family and, you know, just, just be, just be happy about that and grateful for that. And, you know, they came in and took this baby and, you know, now you have a second chance at life Mm. and, you know, and so I'm sitting here going, okay. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But there, that didn't, it didn't connect with yeah. me. It didn't register with me there internally. I, it didn't make sense to me, but I didn't, no one was talking to me about it. And so we just moved on. Everyone just moved on and I was dying. I was dying inside, but I didn't, I didn't know. And so, um, in true Ashley Mitchell fashion, because I don't do anything halfway. <laughs> I lived many years of, you know, I call my Jerry Springer years, but they were very, <laughs> um, very self-destructive. Um, lots of casual relationships, a um, lot of substance abuse, just trying to numb out everything that I was feeling because I didn't have a name for it, but I, the thought of actually feeling it and accepting it was, was too much. Um, so I just did everything I could to mm-hmm. not feel him and not think about it. And um, unfortunately um, that led to an attempted suicide and um, five days locked in a mental hospital <laughs> in Nashville, Tennessee. And, and that was my reality that, you know, um, finally it all caught up with me as it tends to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I couldn't run mm-hmm. forever. And yeah, um, I remember sitting um, with a psychologist and he was just like, you know, what's going on? And I'm like, I'm fine. Uh. <laughs> you know, still even, uh, you know, he's like, we're getting ready to fit you for a straight jacket and you're still going with, I'm fine. <laughs> it's fine. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> it's been working for me. And he's like, has it? Yeah. Has it been working for you? And it wasn't until that point where we, we kind of stripped back, stripped back, stripped back, you know, because now I had this trauma, but then I had five years of crap piled on top of it, of ignoring, Mm -hmm. you know, what had happened. And, um, he finally was like, you're grieving your son. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I was like, why didn't anyone tell me? Wow. And it was just the most profound. It was like, finally, I had a name to all of it. And I was like, oh, we can work with this. Now I know what we're dealing with. And I can work with this. Mm -hmm. 
and that hadn't been presented to me before and it changed it changed everything it was like that you know we all have those moments you know in our life those game changing like aha moments that are like mm-hmm. oh my gosh that put us on a path that changes everything and being able to just put a name and just um, acceptance around what had happened and finally being validated, it Mm -hmm. changed everything for me. And it was the first time since my son had been born that anyone validated me in the loss that I was feeling. And it was, um, it was a powerful shift for me and it was the light turned on and everything was different for me. Mm -hmm. Um, So what did that look like in terms of, um, you know, I think that, you, like you said, it was this powerful moment. And then obviously healing had to happen after that through different ways. And I'm guessing that, um, that impacted how you encourage other birth moms with their process after, um, putting their kids placement. Um, so what did that look like for you? So after I got out of the hospital, (laughs) um, it it was like, oh my gosh, I got to get this all out. Like I had Uh years of all this stuff bottled up. And for me, writing was a really big thing. And so I started like a free like blog spot, you know, when blog spot used Uh to be like the blog that everyone used and I needed to write, like I needed to get it out of my head and out of my heart. And it was like, I need to write because I have have all these feelings. And so I started to write and write and write and write. And I, I wrote for me. Um, mm-hmm. That was a huge, huge piece for me. Um, you know, I got on medication and was seeing a therapist and I started writing. And there's no shame in that game, my friend. <laughs> like It mm-hmm. was such a huge, valuable piece for me during that season. And um, I didn't, I didn't, know the impact I actually I really didn't even think about other people writing it I just I needed it so desperately for me um and people just over the years just started commenting and writing and women were like you know I've never been able to put words to this but this is exactly how I feel and all of these things I was like wow you know grief lies to you and tells you it isolates you and it tells you that you are the only one that's going through this and I really believed for so long that I was literally the only woman on the planet that had ever placed her child for adoption, (laughs) which is so stupid. But I was in so much pain and isolation that I really, no one, my pain is so unique that no one will ever stand. No, no one will ever get it. Mm -hmm. And that's a lie. That's a lie that grief tells us Mm -hmm. that it's so unique that no one will ever be able to sit with you and understand you. And when I was able to start writing and sharing and when women started to come come to me and say, you know, that happened to me too. This is exactly how I feel. I was like, wow, my story's not actually that unique. There's a lot of women that have experienced these kinds of things. And that was powerful for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And it drew me out of isolation and, and sharing my story and finding connection with other women that understood it was more healing than anything that I've ever done any mm-hmm. personal growth, healing and therapy and anything, finding that community of other people that got it um, was 
the most effective part of my healing. Wow. So do you feel like that is continuing to help you heal, staying in community, um, talking to other birth moms, people that have gone through? Like, is that continuing to be a part of your story? Yeah, my my healing definitely continues through sitting knee to knee with mm-hmm. other birth mothers. Um, no matter how many times I talk and share, when I get to sit knee to knee and have them share their pain and their suffering and when they're finally feeling connection and understanding, it just, there's just such a burden lifted. It's magical for me. It's magical for these women to be able to sit in that space. And I, it's, it's life-giving mm-hmm. for me to continue to do that. Um, it's hard um, when you come into, when it shifted from just sharing my story for myself into a space of advocacy, it definitely became a space where, you know, we're reopening our trauma over and over to help others heal because that's what we want. But when I get the the opportunities to just sit in a birth mom circle and it's not on this platform or a speaking right. platform or whatever, when I just get to sit with my people mm-hmm. <laughs> with birth moms, you know, I, they, they fill my bucket and, and that's, that's so important for me. And so there are spaces of, sharing my story that, um, are really tough and relive trauma. And that's always difficult. Um, but having that space to come back to my, my fellow sisterhood, you know, of of fellow birth moms and be able to have that bucket refilled is, is very key, um, to keep myself healthy, to be able to continue to do what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to talk more about the advocating piece. Um, you spoke about how you were just really uh, not even told that you were going to be sad and grieving. Um, And then it sounds like you had literally no support afterwards. Um, And no one telling you, um, hey, we got to walk through this. Hey, we, you know, we we can't just turn our back and walk away because this is real. Um, Why do you feel is that why you feel like this work is so needed needed because parts of your story? So when I, yeah. So when I first got out of the hospital, I started doing a lot of research online, um, looking for support groups and other, you know, women and educating myself on adoption because I had made this decision of adoption. I didn't know anything about adoption. Yeah. It was just a decision you yeah, know, was, that I made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not like I went to my guidance counselor in high school and was like, I'm going to be a birth mom when I grow up and like did all this research and took all these classes. Like that's not a thing. It was not a thing. So, but I made this life altering choice and really knew nothing about it. Mm -hmm. And so all of my research and education came, came after. And I started looking for other birth mother voices. And, you know, we talk about the ones and tens. Um, so I, I, there was the ones who were super angry and in so much pain and emplaced in generations that were so horrific to the mothers, you know, all of the decades be, um, before Roe versus Wade. And then you looked at the tens that were like rainbows and unicorns and adoptions, amazing. And all these, and I was like, I'm like right in the middle. Uh-huh. I love and hate my adoption in the very same breath. Mm-hmm. And I coexist with both emotions all the time but people wanted me to pick one side or the other and it it didn't make sense to me and it wasn't authentic to me and it wasn't honoring um the help that I needed um because I needed both I needed to be able to cater to both pieces Mm -hmm. and 
there just, it didn't exist. And so again, I just said, well, fine, I'll just start my own. <laughs> and um, I knew that women weren't there. People weren't, aren't just going to start their own. <laughs> like, so I was like, I'm going to start my own and hopefully, you know, people will be able to lean into that and, and start that. And so we started, um, it started with an online Facebook group actually. Um, and you know, we learned a lot in those five years that we did online Facebook groups. We did it really well. Um, and we managed that really well, but just because you can start a Facebook group doesn't mean that you should. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, social media is like the best and worst thing that's happened to adoption and pretty much any other (laughs) profession you want to talk about. Um, but what happened, what we found was that in our group because we were catering to birth mothers um the trauma never slept you know facebook social media doesn't sleep Mm -hmm. and so these women were sharing two three o'clock in the morning um of the horrific pain that they were in and you know i spent five years at 2 a.m on the bathroom floor in suicide watch with women and hotlines and um, we were not qualified to handle the kind of trauma that was being put on social media. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we probably caused more damage than good by trying to do good and offer Mm -hmm. support for these women. And I, we have lost um, a lot of women. um, And we had to take a step back for for my own for my own grief and trauma that was being relived so deeply, so deeply and painfully, and for the safety of the other women to say where where can we do better? And that was a huge piece of us going to the professionals, the licensed social workers, and the therapists to say where the hell are you? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you saw us relinquish the rights to our children you saw us leave the hospitals without our babies you know that we experience these Mm -hmm. things where are you when we need you in this grief and trauma afterward and why aren't you helping us we were we were drowning and we needed help and um so through my own experience and things that we tried to do on our own because no one else was standing with us i said no i'm gonna call you out because you want to claim that you're the standard and your ethical practice, but what are you doing for us? And so that's really where my heart for it came um, was for the women that we had lost, that we had failed just because we weren't qualified to help them. Um, and so it was like, we need the professionals and where, where are you? Yeah. Yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about, um, I, I asked this in a very, um, I'm learning posture of talk to me about adoption agencies. And, um, I've just dipped my finger into like, there's some shady stuff going on from what I've gathered. And I'm just (laughs) completely perplexed about how people, um, run businesses that way. Like it's exploiting Mm -hmm. women and babies. Um, can you just share a little bit that you've learned um, along the way? Because I think that it's not known at all, honestly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that is a big question. I know it's huge. but um, um, So here's what I know. 
I think that for decades, um, adoption agencies have been functioning um, in a way that served the adoptive families. Mm-hmm. Um, their mission was to create families, and that's what they accomplished. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, there's so many issues with you know what's legal and what's ethical and all of this conversation, and we can get into all of this. And there's so many shady things about the cost of adoption and where birth mother expenses are being paid to, and um, you know, relinquishment times, you know, when it's 24 hours and it's irrevocable, is that ethical, you know, and all of these things. Um, but my, my heart for it really is to, my lane is to say, where are you in post-placement care? You have to support these women for life. Mm-hmm. And then another huge piece of it for me is to educate the hopeful adoptive families. They are the ones writing the checks Mm. to the agencies Mm -hmm. and making sure that they are educated and understand where their money's going, how it's being used and how the women are being treated before they get their babies. And that is a huge piece that is missing because the hopeful adoptive families are coming in, um, completely vulnerable, Mm -hmm. wanting this baby completely naive, trusting the professional and writing a check for astronomical amounts of money and not asking appropriate questions. Mm -hmm. And they really are the privileged voice in this adoption triad and they need to have better education. Mm -hmm. And so I can sit in that space, you know, unless law changes, unless there's, you know, federal regulation on a lot of stuff, some of the stuff with the agencies just isn't going to change. But adoptive, hopeful adoptive families have power to say, well, I'm just not putting my money to it if it's unethical. Mm -hmm. And if I morally, you know, at the end of the day, the families have to answer to their children. Mm -hmm. How did those children come to their home? How did they become parents? And if they can't answer that with a, with a clean conscience, then we've got, then we've got an issue and Mm -hmm. we're missing a piece. And so for me, I know that there's a lot of, um, legal work that needs to be done. But for me, the hopeful adoptive families that feel called to adopt and want to walk this out and infertility, you know, issues. And and this is how this adoption becomes the vehicle of how they become parents. They need to know more about where they're putting that money. And, and I just don't think they know. I don't think they know. I'm just so, um, I don't know, proud, happy that you were doing this work in that way that like, you know, you're, you're speaking to your people, birth moms, that is wonderful. But you're reaching out past that to, like you said, the privileged party in the triad. And um, I don't know if, I, I, I don't know how many people are doing that. So um, it makes sense that um, let's educate these people because the fact is, most people are not trying to have an unethical adoption. That's not Mm -hmm. what they're trying to sign up for. But like you said, there's the education. If it's not there, then, you know, Mm -hmm. whenever we're walking into a new situation, we don't know what questions to ask, you know, Mm -hmm. you're not even sure what you're missing. Um, So that education piece for them is just a game changer for the whole triad um, because of the power they have. So I, I think it's amazing. You're doing that um, work and just, um, 
being vulnerable in that way um, is wonderful. Yeah, you know, I know, I know families come into this, like, you know, we want this baby and they, and, and that's their mindset. And it's easy to get tunnel vision in that. But, you know, I have the amazing opportunity to have such a beautiful open adoption relationship with my son and his family. And because we're healthier, because they were ethical in these things, you know, it keeps those doors open for these things to take place and, and healthier birth mothers equals healthier open adoptions and more educated adoptive parents equals healthier adoptions. And all of that 100% is done to serve the most important part of this triad, which is the children, which is the adopted child. And so all of these pieces matter and have to take place. And so if we can, if we can change that even a little bit, then, then I think we're in the right space. Yeah. Okay. So I'm so thankful for you talking through all this stuff with me. I think it's incredibly important, but also just um, really not an everyday topic for somebody who maybe hasn't gone through adoption um, or doesn't have somebody close to them that's gone through adoption. Um, In adoption, like you talked about, there's always going to be joy and pain. Um, It's just Mm -hmm. not going to happen without one, both of them. Um, we live in a broken world and that is literally something that every, everyone in the triad and everyone in general has to deal with joy and pain together. Um, but in adoption, what can we do and what do you see we can do to make it as restorative and like holistic as possible um, for all involved, um, but particularly for the birth mom and the child? For me, I want people to first see these pregnant mothers, the women that are making these life decisions that they exist, um, that they have life changing decisions to make and that adoption starts in this, in this brokenness, um, that it's not just about creating these beautiful families, but it is about, um, this separation and seeing these women and honoring them and knowing that someone needs to step up and fill the gap um, for their grief and trauma because it is unavoidable. Yeah. Um, when every time we're celebrating an adoptive family, bringing a baby home, there is a woman that's going home empty bellied and that matters. It matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I want the community to be educated on, um, all sides of the triad to be able to lean into very hard conversation. I know that hearing these kinds of things are really tough and really challenging. They challenge what we've been taught in our churches and they challenge what we've been taught in our schools and what we've been educated in our communities and leaning into things that challenge you, make you better. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And so let's lean in together and and pull up a chair and listen. And just because it makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean that there isn't something to learn there. And so I want people to sit with me and and talk with me and get to know me and understand that um, there are outside of our own selfish desires for what we want to accomplish with this, there are other voices to hear in this space. And I think it matters and we will do this better if we can um, have a respect for all the voices in this, in this complex family dynamic. So you have a new podcast and I would love to hear about your podcast that you have just started. I think it's a great place to um, go and learn. Yeah. So (laughs) my friend Kelsey and I are doing a new podcast. She's also a fellow birth mother. It's called the Twisted Sisterhood podcast, appropriately enough. For And it is a podcast 
that's for birth mothers by birth mothers. So we don't, all of our guests are um, women that have relinquished the rights to their children. And it's really awesome. Kelsey and I have no business hosting a podcast, but we're doing it anyway. <laughs> um, but our, our goal really was we have seen, we're such a silenced voice um, in this triad because first of all, there's so much shame and grief around the things that we have been through that we, so many birth mothers are still, you know, hiding in the quote unquote adoption closet that we don't, we don't even know how to share a story. We're so afraid of, you know, rejection and, you know, the, the criticism that comes with, you know, motherhood that comes in, in such a way of unplanned pregnancies and all these things. And it's tough to talk about. And a lot of women have gone on and gotten married and have kids and have carried the secret their whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I'm really bold and, you know, want to share my story and need everyone to share, but not everyone can do that on a platform like that. And so we created this podcast for women to come on and be able to share their stories. That was just birth mothers. That was just an opportunity to people to see the women behind these babies that are placed and what our process looked like and what adoption has looked like and ethics. And, you know, we cover everything. And so if you really want to educate yourself on the biological parent and what our decisions look like leading to placing our children for adoption and what that trauma looks post relinquishment. It's a great place to be educated because it's not, you don't have to just take my word for it. You can hear Mm -hmm. from many other women and it's, it's pretty good not to like pat ourselves on the back, but our guests and the stories, I mean, it's heavy and it's emotional, but it's so honest. And we, we are lacking this kind of vulnerability in this community. And it's, it's pretty good. I believe it. I, I follow Kelsey as well on Instagram and both of your voices are just so funny. So fun, (laughs) like just really enjoyable. It's, you know, it's a really hard topic. Um, I have no doubt that you guys cover it with humor and grace and um, yeah, it's gotta be a good listen. Yeah, we would love we would love for people to come um, and hang out with us on the Twisted Sisterhood Twisted Sisterhood podcast. It's pretty good. It's awesome, pretty good. awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ashley, for chatting. I have a couple end of podcast questions. Um, yes. So we are because our podcast is the Illuminate Podcast. We like to ask about anyone or anything or any organization that you would like to illuminate. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I could name a million. Um, I know that my bravery to share my story so vulnerably and authentically came from the examples of so many women sharing their stories vulnerably and authentically and giving me permission to do the same and show up like that. Um, there's been incredible women in my life um, that have done that for me. Um, one organization that I would love to highlight that is specifically in the adoption community and serving adoptive mothers or birth mothers um, one organization that's serving birth mothers is On Your Feet Foundation out of Chicago, and they host um, retreats for birth mothers to be able to come from all over the country to sit for an entire weekend um, with fellow birth mothers to learn and dive in and do workshops. And, you know, we offer free support groups every month, but they're bringing women together um, for monthly retreats and they're a nonprofit. And 
I've been um, working with them for an entire year and they're amazing. Um, they want to expand nationally um, to take their retreats all over the country. And there is something, you know, showing up to a support group is one thing, but being able to sit for an entire weekend with mm-hmm. women that you know and love is is a pretty cool space. Um, and so I want to highlight them and the work that they're doing with birth mothers. They've been doing it way longer than I have and deserve the recognition for what they're doing for women like me. That's awesome. Um, our last question is, if you could choose one, what would your message be for the world? You know, we, I think as women, we we get caught up in this um, comparison of, you know, her heart is harder than mine. And so I don't feel like I can share. And I just want you to know that if it's hard for you, or if it's happened to you, it matters. And it, you have the right to express what you've been through and how you're feeling, no matter how small you feel it is, um, if it's affected you in any way, it matters. And I just want to encourage you and support you in, in sharing your story and getting help, whether that's on a national platform or if that's just in the privacy of your own friendships and relationships and community, that if it happened to you, it matters. And sometimes we shrink back when we see these big grand stories of these traumatic, you know, events and, And I think that every single woman, no matter what they're going through, needs support and needs someone to see them and validate them and honor them. And we're all one life choice away from things going off the rails. And I'm just telling you that if you're going through something that you deserve to be seen and heard and don't shrink back thinking that what you've been through isn't isn't enough to, to talk about and have support around. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Thank you, Ashley, for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. Don't forget, you can find more information about Ashley when you go to bigtoughgirl.com and you can find her on Instagram as well at bigtoughgirl. You can find the Illuminate podcast on Instagram. We are the Illuminate podcast over there. You can also find us on Facebook. We are the Illuminate podcast on Facebook as well. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would appreciate it so much if you would consider leaving a rating and review on whatever podcast app you're listening through. And if you loved this episode, feel free to take a screenshot and share it with your friends on social media. We would also appreciate that so much as well. All right, friends, have a really great rest of your day. And we'll see you next week on the Illuminate podcast.